You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Cory Doctorow is a blogger for BoingBoing.net and an activist who has worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's the author of novels including Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, Eastern Standard Tribe, Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town, Overclocked, Makers, and Content, a collection of essays, a novel for young adults, Little Brother. His new novel for young adults is For the Win. Thank you for joining me, Cory. It's my pleasure, Rick. Thank you. You know, Cory, I'm wondering, are you familiar with the work of a Belgian techno artist named Speedy J? No, I can't say as I am, although Belgium's pretty close to me in London. <laughs> I, I, the reason I ask is because one of my favorite tracks by him is something called The Fun Equations. Oh, very good. <laughs> and I had never thought, I always thought that was fundamental or something like that. But when, as soon as I read your book, I go, oh my God, now huh. I know what this is about. <laughs> no, I had no idea. That's funny. <laughs> well, your new novel is about um, teenagers and electronic online games, and mostly about the economy. And as I read this novel, I thought, what a great way to learn about how the economy works. Well, you know, the economy is a game, right? I mean, you know, there's a reason economists use game theory to, to talk about the economy. We, we have rules, we have tokens, we have an agreement to behave in a certain way, we elect referees, we have mechanisms for reforming the rules and for ousting a referee who seems like they're not doing their job correctly. So it really does act like a game. And, and where it gets extremely game-like is in the world of finance, where it's it, you're dealing with... Um, abstractions based on abstractions based on abstractions, you know, synthetic derivatives of a complex financial instrument that's itself a whole bunch more abstractions. So I thought, you know, what better way to explain macroeconomics and the, 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 the new and exciting world of behavioral microeconomics, how, how we make decisions in a way that isn't predicted by regular economic theory, um, than by using video games where people's motives are worn on their sleeves and where the abstruse na- nature of a financial transaction is made a little more humane by the fact that it, it um, deals in things like virtual swords and uh, laser guns and spaceships. I, I would say one thing that I've noticed, there are so many more books and novels across all genres that have at their heart economics as the driving theme. I think there's. it seems that you're really at the forefront of a new kind of genre of fiction in a sense that's economic genre, economic fiction. <laughs> Finance punk. <laughs> um, well, you know, at, at least back to, I guess the I'm, I'm racking my brains for, for the earliest example of stuff with a lot of economics in it. You know, certainly Heinlein did a lot of, of economic stuff. Uh, but I think the first one to be really explicit about it maybe was, was Stevenson and Cryptonomicon, Neil Stevenson and Cryptonomicon, where he's talking about fiat currencies and, and the gold standard and um, how economies work and inflation and monetarism and all the rest of it. Well, that's interesting. I was thinking of uh, the, the Space Merchants. Oh, yeah, of course. One of my favorite novels. That <laughs> I've just written a short story for a Frederick Pohl tribute anthology inspired by the Space Merchants called Chicken Little. <laughs> and it's about... Um, it's about a world in which the wealth gap has become so wide that the very richest people never die. They just become bodies and vats 
uh, these kind of disembodied fortunes that are that are both sovereign countries and people and companies and just collections of organs. And it's about the people who try to sell them things. (laughs) Now, this is kind of interesting because one of the things that I think this your new novel makes really clear is that the consequences of personhood for corporations, because uh, the uh, corporations have constant, have been declared as people. They have mm-hmm. freedom of speech. And, and one of the things you do well is to, turn, to take the consequences of that and turn them into characters uh, in, in a sense that, you know, a corporation can really be, actually be a bad guy. Right, right, or, or a good guy, or mm-hmm. sometimes a good guy and sometimes a bad guy. So I, I think that, um, you know, the corporation, I'm not, I'm not the first one to observe this, but the, the corporation is a synthetic self-sustaining life force, uh, or life form rather, is a, is a very strange phenomenon here, uh, governed by this um, entirely self-serving cry of maximizing shareholder value. It's very funny because you'll hear people say, oh, well, of course the corporation did that morally inexcusable thing they needed to maximize shareholder value. But it's the most meaningless excuse I can imagine because there is no course of action that cannot be described as maximizing shareholder value, right? Oh, we hired that guy at a higher salary because we thought it would incentivize him to work harder so we're maximizing shareholder value. Or we hired that guy and we really negotiated him down on salary because that way we keep more liquid capital and that's uh, maximizing our shareholder value. Or we didn't cut staffing levels at all so that we could bounce back quicker from the recession so we're maximizing shareholder value. Or we cut our staff to the bones so that we wouldn't run up a big debt and have to service the debt when interest rates went up so we're maximizing shareholder value. There is maximizing shareholder value is not a thing that you can measure. Um, it's and so as a result, you can use it to justify any course of action. We pay the CEO an ungodly sum of money even while we're losing money because otherwise he'd leave and go somewhere else and cost them an ungodly sum of money. And somehow that's maximizing shareholder value too. Well, you know, when you think about it, you could take it the other way too and say, well, I murdered 17 people because I wanted to maximize my shareholder value in in this, uh, in, you know, in, as in, I robbed all these houses. Well, or in the oil fields of Nigeria as Chevron, you know, contracted with death squads to, to, to clear the way so that they could uh, do more ready um, uh, mineral extraction. I mean, that there there is plenty of murder in the name of maximizing shareholder value. It's not just IBM selling punch cards to Auschwitz. You know, it's going on today. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the, the plot of this novel. One of the things I really love about this novel is you, you give us some uh, a variety of great characters, and we can identify with them on both sides. I mean, this was the first novel I ever read where I could, like, identify with the Jewish mother. And ah. I, this is, here's the novel that lets me be the Jewish mother all right. Right. Yeah, I really wanted to, to tell a story in which no one felt that they were being a villain. There are a few villains in the book who are, but they're more like spear carriers, just in the same way that there are a few good guys in the book that you don't really know much about, so you don't know much about their motives. But but for the most part, I tried to make even the most villainous of the villains someone who you could see how they thought that they were what they were doing was right, or at least they couldn't figure out how to stop what they were doing if they knew it was wrong. Um, and actually, this is the, this is an idea I'm working through for not my next novel and not the one after that, but the one after that, which I've been calling the Rome book, which is about the moral conundrum of someone who knows that somewhere in the world people are doing uh, are, are living very bad lives and that as a result they're living a very good life but there's nothing they can do to change it and it's it's I call it the concentration camp guards wife's dilemma but I think it's not far off from the dilemma a lot of us live in and I've been working on trying to figure out how to make that into a story oh, that's an interesting observation you're not a teenager anymore 
mm-hmm. yet you did a great job of getting into the minds of these teenagers around the world. Talk about some of the travel you undertook to research this novel. Well, the nice thing about Boing Boing and, and my work with EFF is that I've got a really big network of contacts and friends, and I was able to use that to get a lot of suggestions about places I might go and people I should talk to when I got there. And so I, my, tour, my travel itinerary is kind of self-assembled in South China and in India. So I spent some time in Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and Dongguan, and I spent some time in Mumbai and Pune. And in all of those places, um, I was never at a loss for where to go or who to talk to next. And so I didn't try to do it systematically. Uh, I tried to do it impressionistically. You know, there, I, I, I kind of thought the plot of the novel could follow the things that I found out rather than trying to find out things. This is the difference between writing nonfiction and a novel, is the novel can be bent around the, the most interesting facts, whereas the, 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 the nonfiction needs to find out all the facts so that you can tell the story in the round. So I talked to academic experts and people who were involved in gold farming and people who'd interviewed gold farmers and people who... Um, uh, were hackers in China who built tools for circumventing the Chinese firewall and people who use those tools and just lots and lots of different kinds of people and got all of their stories. And then I read a ton. Um, there are so many good books being written about uh, gaming, about economics, about neuroeconomics and behavioral economics, about China, about India. Um, and all of those things kind of came together. And in terms of writing about adolescence, um, you know, there's some writers who really for, inform the way I think about how young people use networks, uh, that, the critical thinking beyond, oh, they're just exhibitionists who put naked pictures of themselves on Facebook. You know, it's, it's uh, a really nuanced view of how and why all the things that young people do in the network, both the glorious ones and the regrettable ones, arise. Um, Mimi Ito, who, uh, who is the scholar at uh, University of Southern California Annenberg Center, who oversaw the MacArthur Digital Youth Project, and then some of her grad students, like Dana Boyd, are amazing writers on this subject. Um, and so by reading them and other academics like Henry Jenkins, who's also at the University of Southern California now, I feel like I'm, I'm not only tapped into the emotions I felt as an adolescent, because you can recall those, mm-hmm. but also the experience of being an adolescent today. And, and of course, having written one young adult novel, I had cause to go around and talk to a lot of young people, which is what I've been doing all day today. So I spend a lot of time now in the company of young people finding out what they do and how they live. I think they think that the exchange is one way, that I go into the school and I tell them stuff. But I'm spending a lot of time watching them. Well, it's interesting. You've got a great spin on write what you know. Mm. I think that's a, a, a nice way way to develop your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in your novel, you have some nice character arcs. I'm wondering if you could talk about creating these, these character arcs for these young people and the older people in the novel. Um, is this something, when you're, as you're working on a, on a book like this, which is informed by a constantly uh, changing technology and society, I mean, Facebook is exploding even as we speak, mm. uh, it, it's creating the characters is, is a challenge, I would assume. In terms of getting people who are doing things that interest the reader, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's a very simple heuristic for it, which is that if you have someone who uh, is trying intelligently to solve a problem and failing with the consequence that things get worse, there will always be a reason to turn the page. I think this is like the, this is like the kernel of what makes drama in um, Western literature right, that, uh, that in modern Western literature, that basically you have people in places with problems, trying to solve them, failing, and things are getting worse. And so, and so that template's very broad, 
And when you get to a crossroads and you're like, what happens next to this person? If you just ask yourself, what's the problem? How are they trying to solve it? How will they fail? And what will make it worse? And so when you're writing a very technologized story, then that often revolves around technology. And those consequences are natural and logical and arising from their actions. Someone who discloses too much information on Facebook, what sort of problems will arise for them? Well, we know what those are. And how will they try to solve them? Well, we know how people try to solve them. And then how will things get worse for them? And so, for example, maybe you'll have disclosed too much on Facebook or on a social networking service and then withdrawn from that social networking service. And then in addition to have su having suffered the humiliation of putting too much information into the public eye, you'll also suffer the social deprivation of not being able to commiserate with your friends, right? So that's, there's, there's your basic made a, made a mistake, tried to solve it intelligently, failed to solve it and things got worse. Now you're not only ha is your personal life up for everyone to see, but you can't even communicate with your friends, right? So that's the, and, and so you just keep doing that. And by the time you're done, you've got a novel. I, I love that. And I think, you know, it, what's interesting is what you just explained to me, mm -hmm. it reminds me of like a lot of what the characters say in the novel. You have a kind of an interesting, um, you have a way of humanizing math and science and breaking it down into little bits and chunks that we can really understand. Talk about creating these kind of, and that's one of the things I think you do well in this novel is to um, do, you've made the info dump exciting, entertaining, and an integral part of the plot. And I, and it's a time-honored part of science fiction. Sure it is. You know, that's that's like straight out of Heinlein. You know, it's uh, the, 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 the narrative exposition uh, for the purposes of explaining abstruse subjects t uh, that are themselves part of the underlying story. And I think it's, you know, it's part of, of good pedagogy, too, that, that one of the ways that you can explain complex, abstract ideas is through concrete ones, is through concrete examples. And, you know, the, the way that you do this in a classroom is with um, trivial concrete examples. You know, uh, Sue has three apples. Tommy wants an apple. If uh, Tommy has one of Sue's apples, how many apples does Sue have left? And, and yeah, that does humanize the abstract, but it's, it's nowhere near as humanizing as uh, what happens if you actually care about Tommy and Sue and understand why there's some drama about the fact that he might take one of her apples away. And so by taking these abstract ideas and making Gedanken experiments that are in fact part of a larger Gedanken experiment, which is the science fiction novel itself. So science fiction novels are thought experiments. And within them, they contain thought experiments that are, that are staged dramas to explain an idea. It, it makes the idea kind of come to life. It makes the idea, it turns the idea into a character. And one of the things you do very well is use these in terms of pacing the plot of your novel. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we'll find some, some a bit of exposition or some really interesting talk, and you you write these up very well. So you explain complicated things in, a, in an entertaining manner, which is really nice. But what's nice also is that as a reader, we realize that this we can see that half of this idea has already presented itself, and the other half is to come in the plot. That's right, and that's 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 something that I really try to do. That that you have a a, a kind of discor a discursive moment that is both the uh, both implied by what came before and foreshadows what's about to come next. Um, and so that it, it's a, it's a, I think it's a good way to kind of sneak it in. I also think that if you sneak it in at the moment at a moment of high drama, it's a way to keep the reader on tenterhooks. 
you it, know. It really does work that way. It keeps it, it, uh, it increases the tension mm-hmm. rather than diffusing the plot mm-hmm. momentum. Now, one of the things that interested me about this book was um, the, it, the ontological nature of it uh, because you're writing about gaming. Um, gaming is an experience that's analogous to reading in some ways and different in others. And when we perceive the real world in this book um, through the reading experience and the gaming world through the reading experience, they become a little more equivalent. And I think it's an interesting way of giving people who don't immerse themselves in games Mm. the feeling of being immersed in a game. Well, I think that there's a kind of exceptionalism that takes place when we draw a distinction between the real world and the virtual world. You know, our real world of like getting in a in a, um, a metal box with an exploding machine inside of it that drives you at superhuman speeds to another place uh, and then you get out and while wearing your synthetic fibers aim a, a highly technological microphone at someone and have a conversation. How is this realer or less real you know, this this has the same. This has no more or less relationship to the life of early hominids on the savanna than you know my orc talking to your orc, right? I mean, these are these are these are like a, a Martian watching us through a telescope wouldn't be able to tell you why one was a natural human activity and the other one was an artificially mediated activity. Um, you know, they they I I don't dispute that they're different, but they're but one isn't inherently. Uh, human and the other one artificial and at some removed. So if the scenes of life in the game and life in the quote unquote real world are blended in the book, I think it's because the the two of them are pretty artificial. Uh, the, the distinction between the two are artificial, especially when we're talking about things like, say, um, South China, where in the past 10 years, some enormous fraction of all the world's manufacturing capacity was shuttered, put into shipping containers, and sent to South China. And then the largest migration in human history was undertaken to move people there to work, right? To say that somehow those people are living the original human life, but as soon as they stick their heads in a video game, they're living an artificial and mediated life is wrong, right? It's just wrong on its face. No one has ever lived the way that they live in Shenzhen before because this is this is a unique thing in the history of the world. That's a really interesting observation. Uh, you know, a- as a reader, when I'm reading about uh, the, the scenes in-game, it, it, what interests me is that uh, one of the problems with fiction about virtual characters is that at just about the time we realize our virtual characters, often we can just stop, well, why do I care about them? They're mm. just pixels. And one of the things you do very well is to humanize these virtual worlds. And as you say, make sure that we understand that there's people behind everything that's happening in this world. It's not happening on its own. I think the problem of the early VR novel, like sort of post-Gibson novel, was that um, they described worlds that had no limits. And so there was no reason to care about anything that happened because you didn't know if it was a moment of a special daring or just uh, something quite banal. You know, in a world in which it's equally easy to jump over a mountain and jump over a pebble, um, you don't know, after a while, things just stop looking heroic and dramatic and, and monumental and, and important. Um, I think that as soon as you start relating the constraints in the game world and the constraints on the player to one another, then the, then the game world starts to feel like it has moment again. So maybe it's the fact that the person who's playing the game will eat or not eat based on how much money he or she makes in the game. 
Maybe it's the fact that the person playing the game is forging or maintaining their most important social relationships using the game. Whatever that is, um, the game suddenly takes on a, a, a secondary significance that um, is not about the unlimited possibility of a virtual world, but about its very real constraints. Well, it's interesting, too, that you use real corporations like Coca-Cola, but you create games, and that must be a challenge. I, I believe that these games are created. Am I wrong? Yeah, they are. They're, they're made up. Um, so it's my, my technique for doing that was, um, generally speaking, what would happen is I would get to a position in which there was someone needed to mention a new game but not play it. So I would just come up with a name for the game. And then later on, I would have to have a scene in which the game was being played. And that's the point at which, and, and it'd been, it would percolate in my subconscious for a while. And then I would sit down and it's like, oh, yeah, I mentioned Zombie Mecca a couple of pages ago. What would be a game about zombies and Mecca? How would, what would its mechanics be like? And then I would, I, would, I would draw it in. So it was actually, it was a nice way to go because you can start just by spitballing essentially high concepts, titles, snakes on a plane. And then later on, you actually, you know, kind of fill in the details. Well, I love the the Wonderland game. Mm, that was really fun to write. Yeah, I, I would love to play that. You know, I'm an Alice in Wonderland nut. My um, first book I ever read to myself was Alice in Wonderland. And uh, it had a pretty strong impression on me. I'm, I'm married to a woman named Alice. So it gives you an idea of just kind of what a profound impression it made. Um, now, one of the things that, that interested me in this book is the, the use of technical details. You're writing a novel, you know, that, that's set almost, it seems, the day after tomorrow. Calling this a science, I don't think that many people would necessarily say this is a science fiction novel. Mm. Um, but as you're writing this novel and you're using specific details, could you talk about the, you know, do you worry about uh, that they'll date? I mean, you know, is I, I, I bet that somewhere out there there's a science fiction novel that's really like has a slew of Betamax technology <laughs> spawning into the future. Well, you know, actually, if you want to see the example of that, look at um, the way that Asimov and Heinlein made a distinction between a robot and a computer, mm. right? I mean, the, a computer is just a robot with articulated stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, but they, they thought of them as two completely separate categories. Sure, Heinlein sure. called them brains, right? He had robots and brains. Um, and there would be a big brain underneath a city that would control it. And then there'd be robots that would do uh, so-called simple tasks like like recognizing faces and maneuvering three-dimensional <laughs> spaces full of high-speed, high, high unpredictable objects. And so, but, but I think that science fiction is at its very best when explicitly or implicitly it is reflecting back our anxieties and aspirations for the technology around us, right? If it's, if it's projecting a future, it's projecting a future in order to be either optimistic or pessimistic about some technology that's, that's in our world today. And as a result, I, I don't feel like, techno like science fiction dates, right? I like reading old science fiction. I like reading Jules Verne and I like reading Heinlein and I like reading Bradbury and I like reading Asimov because what those, what those novels are, are a study in a technological moment and in what promise and what fears were, were implied by that moment. You know, Orwell was not predicting 1984. Orwell was writing about a moment in which the, the power of the state to control the individual finally met up with its claims of control over the individual. Lots of states had said for a long time, we are total in our control over the individual. But as a practical matter, there wasn't much they could do about what individuals did. The advent of, of technological Stalinism with its wiretaps and its hidden cameras and, and all of the other components that were part of the machinery of the state, I think gave Orwell justifiably the willies. 
And that's what he was writing about, you know. It, and so the fact that view screens, as Orwell described them, don't really exist, although there is that school district, Laura Marion School District in Pennsylvania, that issued mandatory um, uh, webcam-enabled laptops to its students that they were required to take to school and that they weren't allowed to use any other computer with to do their homework that had um, webcams that could be switched on covertly when they were at home or away and were switched on uh, according to a court filing 10,000 times to photograph them at sleep, asleep, undressed, in private moments with their families um, is pretty close to the view screen. But I don't think Orwell was predicting the view screen. I think Orwell was using the view screen as a futuristic mirror to describe the surveillance technologies of the late 40s. Well, he famously wanted to title the novel 1948. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And they said, no, 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 no. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> huh. I didn't know that. I do know that if you go to Broadcasting House in London, which is not far from my office, uh, you can see the room 101 in which Orwell worked when he worked for the Beeb. <laughs> I didn't know that. Now, one of the things I think this novel does very effectively is talk about globalization and you're the man who's giving globalization, I think, a positive spin in a, in a way. Well, so globalization has some ex incredibly positive elements, right? Like, like the, the idea that all of us l see ourselves as living in one world that we all share and in which we all have a shared interest and, and, and common goals is very positive, right? It, it, it's, in fact, I think the only way that we can rescue the planet through thi for, through, from things like environmental collapse, but also global war and so on. It's that, it's that notion that, it is our, that, it, that there's only one world and that we all share it and that the boundaries that separate nations are just arbitrary lines. Um, but at the same time, the globalization of capital that arose asymmetrically without a, without a concomitant globalization in labor I mean, labor did go global in as much as you have like H-1B diaspora people coming from, you know, the subcontinent and the, and, and, and the Philippines and so on and setting up uh, shop here and working. But labor doesn't move with the fluidity of capital. Mm. Um, and what that means is that um, wherever labor has, ha has fought hard for and won um, uh, dignity, decent wages, safe working conditions, uh, paid time off, health care, and so on, those jobs are free to go to places where, where labor is disorganized and can't and not in a position to fight for those things and where the state will intervene to stop labor from doing that. And what I what I wanted to write about is what would happen if labor got organized the way capital did, because labor now has access to the tools to be virtually present everywhere that their job might be. And and you know, gold farming is a good example for this because everybody who works in a virtual world is is virtually present in the same place as everybody else who works in that virtual world, even though physically they might be on opposite sides of the globe. So they're situated to organize themselves in a way that um, has we've never really had before and in a way that uh, really trumps their boss's surveillance and control. You might be living in your boss's dorm, he might have hidden cameras, he might have hidden microphones, but chances are he can't keep track of all the orcs you're chatting with today as you mine your gold. Well, you know, it, it interested me. I was taking notes for this novel. My handwriting, unfortunately, is so terrible. I often I'll make these yellow stickies in my mm, notes, and I mm. can't read them. And I came across this, this note, and it said, Onion. And I go, Onion, Onion, what's this? Oh, no, wait. Union. Ah, ah, that's what I was trying to that's say. Very funny. Uh, and, and I think, well, there's, a, there, as with uh, unclear and nuclear, maybe uh -huh. there's, maybe there's a semantic uh, 
reason for these words to have some similarity because the union really can cut across all strata and it really can start at the top and go all the way to the center. Yeah, I mean, unions, I think, have had a, have suffered from um, a real PR problem in, in the last couple of decades. And I'd be the first one to say that there's lots of imperfections in the trade union movement. But like Joe Lewis said when they asked him why he was going to go fight Hitler when, when he didn't consider himself a supporter of the American government, he said, well, there's plenty of things wrong with the world, but Hitler's not going to help, right? And, <laughs> and you know, um, I, I feel like... You know, anyone who's ever enjoyed a weekend or thanked their, their stars that their child wasn't mangled by a machine or who's had an eight-hour day with eight hours to work and eight hours to sleep and eight hours for what they will uh, is is free riding on the trade union movement. And to, to enjoy those benefits and then turn around and say that there's no place for trade unionism or trade unionism is just gangsterism or trade union short circuits the market's natural order – um, is, I think, wrong, right? So unions have done bad things, and unions continue to do bad things, and union leadership can become very corrupt. But the idea of collective negotiation as a means of uh, overcoming the enormous power differential between an individual worker when she, uh, when she negotiates with a corporation is, I think, the only thing that we have, right? And I, I think that it, if that's all we've got, it behooves us to perfect the union, not to reject the union, because the, you can't just take away the power of individuals to negotiate together to get a better deal. I mean, no one goes, oh my God, Costco, what a market failure. All these people getting together to demand as, as collectives instead of as individuals better prices. What, it, what you know, they're, they're short-circuiting the market, but as soon as a thousand workers get together and demand a better wage, they're like, well, that's a market failure. Um, I, I really think that without collective... Uh, uh, without collective negotiation and bargaining, workers get a, a materially worse deal to the general detriment of society because we're the ones who have to live with our maimed and crippled and overworked friends and relatives uh, than if there's some way to, to, to balance out the negotiating differential. Well, I think one of the great lost opportunities of the last two decades was that the IT workers never managed to unionize that well, this is one of the things I, I was thinking is that, you know, and IT you, workers are in one virtual world. They're all on the same Internet. Mm -hmm. They're all in a place to, to get together and, and form a union. I mean, they tried at Microsoft, right? I mean, Microsoft had done this dodge where they, they had legions of workers who weren't technically Microsoft employees. They, were, they had been uh, – the, the, the shape of their job had been cut – like a gerrymandered electoral district to fit as a kind of mirror image of the things that made you an employee so that they were just, you know, sort of, they were separated from being an employee by the thickness of an atom. And that somehow allowed Microsoft to avoid giving them all the things that employment law guarantees them. Well, um, one of the things that uh, interested me about uh, your, the video games that you create mm -hmm. was how strong the overwhelming influence of Lord of the Rings. It is Lord of uh, the uh, damned video games, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, um, it, Charlie Strauss calls uh, most heroic fantasy extruded Tolkien product. <laughs> and I think it is. You know, then there's extruded Howard product. But but most of it's extruded Tolkien product, the, the thrice-brewed tea of, of, of J.R.R. Tolkien, you know. Um, I think you're right. There's a great Bruce Sterling lecture from the 1992 Game Developers Conference where he says, if you want to write heroic fantasy, don't read Tolkien. Read, you know, the Norse bards that Tolkien read. You know, don't don't read the tea that he already brewed. 
You know, go go find, go pick your own leaves, right? Go back to the original source for inspiration. And I think where you see really great fantasists like Jane Yolen or Ellen Kushner or Neil Gaiman, these are people who who are um, or 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 um, Charles Delint. These are people who are folklorists who are incredibly familiar with the underlying source material. And when they write fantasy novels, they are not writing fantasy novels that are that are merely. Uh, uh, derived from the ideas of the people who read the, the source material. They are uh, distinctive uh, new um, interpretations of that very old primal story. Uh, that's an interesting observation. And, and I think that uh, one of the things you do in uh, For the Win is that uh, you bring a bring to the forefront the, the importance of stories um, in all our lives and in a variety of ways. There's the, the, the stories that the families tell one another. Um, each of the you know, young main characters have families, stories from their families. The, all the video games, all the games they play revolve around stories. And I think there's an interesting um, part of this novel that speaks to just the power of, of story itself. Yeah, although I, I dispute slightly that the games are stories, because I think that games aren't stories the way that we normally think about them. I think this is why it's so boring to hear someone tell you about their Dungeons & Dragons campaign. Because <laughs> although they're a narrative, they're not stories the way that we think of them. The, um, the aesthetic appeal of a game doesn't come from watching it or hearing it recounted. It comes from playing it. Uh, in the same way, I think this is not true of all fan fiction, but a lot of fan fiction the aesthetic appeal of fan fiction comes from composing it collaboratively on a message board. And I, read, I write a bit, you read a bit, we talk about it, and so on. And that to, that to observe the, the thing afterwards, the thing that's left behind, is like to judge a sex act by what's left behind on the sheets, right? You can't judge a Dungeons & Dragons game by the crumpled up pieces of paper on the table the next day. To judge a Dungeons & Dragons game, you have to play the game, right? That's where you get the aesthetic appeal from. One of the things that you do in this in this uh, novel is you explain some of the the mechanisms of the games, and I, and I think some of these are really interesting. Some of uh, what you call um, random reinforcement. Yeah, this is the or, or intermittent reinforcement, which is yeah. what, what what they why they call it World of Warcraft. Yeah, well, this is this is the Skinnerian, right? This is the the neuroeconomic component of or behavioral economic component of games, where uh, I think games have probably unconsciously optimized for a set of, um, uh, of mechanics that act as reinforcers, right? Because the games that don't reinforce play die, in, and the games that do reinforce play don't. And so games have, many games have figured out the knack of being compelling without being fun. This is actually a, a really terrible thing, but Farmville is probably my favorite example of this, right? Here is a game whose mechanic is designed to occupy all of your attention, to keep you in a, in a constant state of arousal and alertness, but to completely fail to delight you in any way. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that, that I understand why game developers make their games that way, but I find it really distressing. Uh, you know, as I was driving up here, I'm on the freeway, and I pull up behind this big old honking truck, and it's got a shipping container on it. <laughs> and the first thing I'm thinking is, whose dorm room is in that shipping container? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Talk about the importance of that. Is That's an interesting uh, technological observation you make about how important those are. Well, I'm not the first one to do this. I mean, shipping containers are the packet data of the, of the um, globalized economy, right? The, the, the shipping containers... 
uh, create efficiencies in shipping and routing um, that by standardizing the unit and standardizing the way in which it can be moved that we've never really seen before. Um, and so uh, like the way that so many Happy Meal toys and other assorted tchotchkes can get from Shenzhen or Guangzhou to the Port of Los Angeles, the, the only way that can happen is with the advent of shipping containers. And so we're, we're starting to build a world around this like incredibly useful thing in the same way that like um, when Fibonacci introduced Roman numerals to or Arabic numerals to Europe, suddenly Arabic suddenly numbers were everywhere. Numbers were part of everything we did in a way that they hadn't been when numbers were cumbersome and difficult. The shipping container has streamlined incredibly complex pieces of global logistics, and now there's shipping containers everywhere you look, and people are figuring out how to repurpose them. Um, People are figuring out how to how to make roads wide enough to accommodate them. Um, you know, this is a this is a condition of building a new truck design is that its bed must accommodate a, a shipping container comfortably. Um, you know, all of these things are becoming you know it's become a standard unit. Um, in the same way that there's this story which I think is apocryphal about the uh, longest axle that a Roman blacksmith could make uh, that was determined by the metallurgy of his day. Um, that uh, determined the wheelbase size of the Roman roads, which determined the um, uh, the wheelbase size of all of all the vehicles that rode on those roads subsequently, e.g., automobiles. That determined the width of of the standard highway lane. That determined the width of the modern shipping truck. That that determined the widest width you could make a space shuttle. Uh, refueling tank, right? So basically, the state of Roman metallurgy determined the state of the the width of a of a space shuttle tank, um, and so you know I, it's a really lovely parable. I I've read somewhere that it it's not entirely true that it 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 oversimplifies and glosses over some very important um, nuance, but as a as a little parable about how when how how. Um, the constraints and benefits of something incredibly useful can ripple down and out in a million unforeseen ways. We're seeing that with shipping containers too. I mean, goods are limited to the width of a shipping container. You have to make you have to make goods. If you make goods that don't fit into a shipping container, you need to invent an entirely different kind of shipping to get it from A to B. Uh, that's <laughs> very interesting. Now, one of the things that you talk about here is the importance of uh, not just innovation, not creating something out of whole cloth, the importance of like research, how much research you put into a project product, but how well it does when it gets out into the marketplace. I guess the segue would be the um, perhaps the, the, the poster child for this, something that where there was just tons of research and tons of anticipation, but it's really you know been a misfire in the marketplace yeah i think that this is part of a, a maybe a larger truth about how anything that's hotly anticipated by an industry a class of invention that's hotly anticipated by an industry like say ebooks um which we've been told for a long time are the future of publishing can't ever realize their full potential because whenever anyone tries to do something small experimental modest and interesting with ebooks um everybody else at the publishing house crowds around them to ensure that whatever it is they're doing doesn't take off and become something that undermines some corner of the business that's vital to them. And so the same is true of mobile uh, content, uh, mobile content delivery or mobile telephony, that basically anytime someone tries to do something genuinely novel and experimental, um, 
the only way that you can play in that space because it's so kind of overcapitalized is to be a great big player. And uh, that means necessarily that there's a bunch of people around you who don't want you to succeed if it means them uh, d diminishing in importance or, or vanishing. You know, when you solve a problem, you have an interest in keeping that problem around so you can go on solving it. <laughs> so um, that that's all by way of saying that rather than being able to come up with a cool idea and iterate on it, try something new, try something new, do a bunch of modest, interesting experiments that don't cost much when they fail, we're left with... Um, everybody gets in a room, you spend two years inventing something, and unless you're like the luckiest person in the world, chances are it's not going to hit the bullseye, right? The way you hit the bullseye is by getting it somewhere near the target and then inching it along one little step at a time with a lot of reversals uh, until you actually reach there. Uh, that reminds me of an old thing I read in a Klaus Schulz album about 20 years ago, and it never took me years to understand it, where he said, achieving perfection is a matter of quantity, not quality. Yeah, Thomas Watson said, if you want to double your success rate, triple your failure rate. <laughs> That's a, a great way of putting it. Um, you know, this this book is, uh, your new book, For the Win, is something of a, of a polemic. Mm -hmm. And I really like um, polemics when they're well done. Um, and... It's a, it's a difficult thing to pull off because you have to be, on one hand, you have to be very serious and you have to have something really substantial, substantive to say. On the other hand, you have to give the reader a sense of fun. And talk about, as a writer, creating this, creating that sense of balance, which we find in For the Win and Little Brother, and in fact, I think most of your books, um, to create that kind of sense of balance that makes it fun to, to get the message. Well, I guess if you have characters who care really passionately about something that's uh, that's an idea, then as they play out their passion, the idea comes to the fore in a way that's necessarily interesting. People who are passionate about something fighting hard to make it a reality are interesting, right? Whatever it is that they're interested in. So the polemic um, gets a free ride on the passion. <laughs> I like that. Um, you know, uh, you you talked about ebooks. Um, and but you have your own publishing experiment. And I think I'm looking at the at the first iteration there on mm -hmm. the uh, yeah that's the proofs there uh, on the table here. Um, t tell us about with a little help. How, what what it, what is it and why is it uh, different? I've done a couple of short story collections with a mainstream press, and they were pretty successful. They sold a, a reasonable number of copies and made me a reasonable amount of money. But um, didn't go very far, and it's they're not a giant moneymaker for anyone. Short story collections are just kind of, they sit to one side. They're things that, that presses, I think, feel they need to do, but they don't, they're not anyone's bread and butter. Mm -hmm. And so this is a ripe area for doing low-cost experimentation because the worst thing that could happen is it won't make, it, instead of making not much money, it'll make a little less than not much money. <laughs> um, so I decided I would try an experiment. I would take some reprint stories, which is what all my collections have had, and I would produce them in a number of different editions that I would sell and give away and see how much money I could make and tell everyone how I was doing with it. So I, um, I produced, uh, I, I solicited, and I would do it with my friends because this would not be an, ex an exercise in pure commerce. It would be an exercise in a social contract between writers and between audiences. So I asked artist friends of mine if they would contribute covers, and I paid them for them, but I, I went to my friends. So Rudy Rucker did one, and Fred Frank Wu did one, and Rick Leader did one. That's the cover you see there. Mm -hmm. And then Pablo Defendini used to be at Tor, did one. 
And um, then I asked uh, John Barry, who's a legendary typesetter, typeset my book content that was published by Tachyon here in San Francisco, if he would do the interiors, and he did the interiors. And then I asked all my voice actor friends if they would read stories for the audiobook. And so I got um, Leo Laporte and Neil Gaiman and Will Wheaton and Mary Robinette Cole and my friend Emily Herson, who's an actor, and so on. And then one of my readers, who acts as my podcast editor, agreed to edit these as well. Uh, and then finally, I asked all my writer friends for their paper ephemera, their uh, notes, their doodles, anything that they had lying around that they were sentimental about, didn't know why they were keeping it, and would probably end up throwing away someday. And, you know, Joe Haldeman sent me his watercolors that he doodles with when he's thinking, and Jay Lake sent me his cancer diagnosis, and Kathy Koja sent me her grade two report card. And I'm, I'm doing 250 bespoke hardcovers at a bindery near me in London with rag paper, um, where you, each one will have two pieces of paper ephemeras and papers. So they'll be original and papers. And I'm going to sell those for $250 each. Um, now, all of these things are produced on demand. There's no, almost no capital costs. And I sold one short story in advance. So I sold essentially a sponsorship. I was going to do it after the book came out. But um, I mentioned it over lunch to a friend who decided that he would buy the story. And so uh, Mark Shuttleworth, who, who started the Ubuntu Linux project, uh, bought a commission for $10,000. So here's the way that you can buy it. You can get it for free as an ebook, and you can donate or not any amount that you'd like. You can buy it in any one of four covers from Lulu, and I'm going to do um, also uh, short-term covers that fans contribute. Um, if you spot a typo in the book, I'll correct it in the next print, copy printed in all of the editions at Lulu, and I'll give you a footnote on that page, so maybe you'll buy a second copy to get one with your name on it. I'm also going to add an appendix once a month to the on-demand editions with all the financials for the book, so it will be an ongoing uh, report on how it, how it works, what's hard, what's easy, where the opportunities are for people who want to expand or set up new publishing businesses that help people do this kind of thing, whether that's a, an established uh, publisher. So my editor at Patrick, Neil, uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden at Tor read one of the stories because I think he wants to see the outcome of this experiment too. He wants to see where publishing is going. And Jonathan Coulton wrote the introduction and, and, and read it for the audio. You can buy the audiobook on CD from Pod Discs, and you can either buy the MP3 version or you can buy the AUG version. The AUG version is cheaper because I want to promote uh, non-proprietary formats. And then you can, um, uh, uh, you can buy the limited edition hardcovers, but you can also download the audio for free and put it in your podcast under a Creative Commons license. And so basically the idea here is to try all of it see which ones make me the most money, and establish some data points that are publicly scrutinizable that other people can add to as they try their own experiments. And we can see what works and what doesn't and where the opportunities lie. Well, this is such an interesting use of um, economic technology. Eh? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that, you, that we see in uh, For the Win is when you start thinking about economics as, as a technology that you can play with. Uh, this is such a great example of that. It's far more interesting than, than an ebook could hope to be. Yeah, and partly this is about understanding that, um, uh, you know, Tim O'Reilly's aphorism most artists' problem isn't piracy, it's obscurity. Uh, I have a variant on it I've been grandiosely calling Dr. O's second law, which is it's hard to monetize uh, fame, it's impossible to monetize obscurity. So this is, about, this is about seeing what happens when you have an object, a digital object that's notorious, and you make physical objects that are related to it, and whether that notoriety of the digital object 
can be used to enhance the value of a related physical object. And if it can, well then there's something that the more you copy it, the more value, valuable it gets, right? This is the equivalent of maybe a concert being more valuable because the artist's songs have been copied more widely, right? The more Madonna's now with a, with a uh, uh, concert promoter, not a record label. The more you copy your music, the less money the record label gets. The more money, the more you copy your music, the more they can charge for a concert ticket. Um, so can we come up with a way to make physical objects that grow in value the more their digital avatars are copied? And if so, can we end the copyright wars? Uh, this is something that, that you're, of course, very interested in. Um, talk about um, what's going on with your work with you know the uh, DCMA laws in both Canada and in the, the UK, where this is pretty scary stuff. I mean, people like myself who do some of make some of their living online. If my kid shares a file somewhere, um, if somebody who doesn't who sees that doesn't like me and wants to wants to take me down, this could be a good way to to censor or just take out your competitors in the marketplace. So the U.S. led the world in stupid copyright laws for the digital era with the Digital Millennium <laughs> Copyright Act or DMCA in 1998. And other countries followed suit. It's DMCA implements a, a UN treaty called the WIPO Copyright Treaty. And other countries have, have implemented the WCT. Uh, but now countries are going further. So in the UK, we've just passed the Digital Economy Act. And the Digital Economy Act was passed without any uh, formal parliamentary debate. It was rushed through just before they dissolved parliament to call the election. And it was really quite shameful. And among other things, it provides for taking away the internet connections of entire families if anyone in the family is accused without conviction of copyright infringement. So as you say, if you make part of your living online, you could lose your livelihood because your kid was accused of infringing copyright, whether or not she was doing it. Um, but it goes it's worse than that, because especially for economically vulnerable or marginal families, an internet connection uh, goes along with better nutrition, more social mobility, their kids go to college more, their kids get better grades, they have more disposable income because they can pay their bills online and save money that way, they can search for better jobs. All of those things arise out of your network connection. To have that confiscated, really your lifeline to the information age, confiscated because of an accusation of, of copyright infringement. I mean, I think it's it's undue even if you've been convicted of copyright infringement, but on the strength of an accusation is, is terrible. So it's just come in in the US, in the UK rather, they're proposing something like it in, in Canada. Uh, there's, a, there's a copyright bill that's about to come down the pipe that, that the government has promised to ram through. Uh, and then around the world, there's a treaty negotiation called the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement. It's been taking place in secret, but they have leaked and then ultimately released some drafts that uh, includes this. And the Obama administration, they didn't start it, but they've been continuing it very aggressively. Uh, and also continuing this, this, this secrecy around it where they won't tell us what's in it. When, when the Electronic Frontier Foundation filed a Freedom of Information Act request to find out what the text of this treaty that the Obama administration was negotiating on copyright was, the administration refused because they said that it was a, a national security secret. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I supported the Obama campaign, but... I didn't, and I didn't expect him to walk on water, but I really hoped he wouldn't wallow in muck. And it really seems like in, in this area, the, the DNC and the Democratic administration is stuffed with entertainment industry lawyers whose parochial view of the internet 
is that um, what they do with it only matters in terms of what happens to the, the future of, of Hollywood movies and not to the future of every other endeavor that we undertake on the internet. And if they, they compromise or undermine all those other things that we do on the internet, it's a small price to pay on the way to selling a few more copies of a DVD. And I think that this is a, just a disaster. Um, you know, you were talking about families, and I know that you're a parent now. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's interesting, the observation that you make in, in this novel, I think that's really, really interesting, is uh, Leonard uh, Wei, Wei Dong, mm-hmm. Wei Dong uh, as he calls himself, uh, he strikes off on his own, and he leaves his Jewish mother behind, and she's going, you need to go to school and get a good job and make a good life. And he's remembering his grandfather, who did pretty much the same thing that he was doing. And what this made me think about was that the the changing um, perspectives of when people are mature, I mean, People must be declared mature at 14, 15, 16, and now, and now it's kind of wound back so that you might have a 24-year-old child who still lives at home or a 34-year-old child who still lives at home. And I think it's not just terrible in that it infantilizes us. I think it's also terrible in that it um, ossifies us because there is this idea that, that maturity is something you attain and then stop. Right, that neuroplasticity ends with adolescence, which is something that modern neuroplasticity research tells us isn't true. That that the extent to which you can rewire your brain even after you've left your adolescence is much greater than we ever thought. Um, you know, this is how miracle stroke recoveries happen: is that there are, that your brain is capable, with you know the right systematic approach of of overcoming limitations that we think of as being fixed in from the earliest childhood, and um, so. I, I, I hope that the trajectory of, of this is not that we eliminate the idea of a long adolescence, or, but rather that we acknowledge that in some ways we're perpetually adolescent, that we always have the curiosity and bravery of adolescence somewhere in us, and that in another way we are often mature and that these things aren't mutually exclusive and that they, they rest in different proportions or ratios in us at different times of our lives. And those ratios change all the way along. And you may be mature enough to do one thing and not another, and, and that maturity may come really late in life. And, and as well, at, in some point, parts of life, it helps to be immature. And in other parts of life, you need the maturity and you need to be able to grab those when, when, they're, when they're applicable. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, um, the, the fearlessness of adolescence, the willingness to do things for the first time, to tell your first lie of consequence, to do your first noble thing for a friend is um, magnificent, right? It's one of the reasons it makes writing young adult fiction so fun. Uh-huh. But, it's, but it's also indispensable. And it's something that every era has a need for, are people who are willing to do those things, who are willing to do something for the first time, who are willing to make a set of wings out of wax and feathers and jump off a cliff and trust that the wings will catch them, to do something where you can't possibly know the consequences until you've tried it, right? And, and all the wonderful things arise from people who are willing to take that kind of risk. And so I, I hope as an adult that we never have to lose that, that we, that we are more forgiving of ourselves and more willing to allow ourselves to do that. You mentioned that you're thinking three novels out. So uh-huh. not only are you uh, a science fiction writer and when you're actually writing your novels, but your novels themselves are to 
in a certain perspective. <laughs> At this point, science fiction. It's true. Well. <laughs> it's true. They are projection into the future. Well, so I've sold a novel uh, called Pirate Cinema that I'm working on now. And I've, uh, Charlie Strauss and I had written two nove novellas before, and we have sold the third one as a fix-up novel. So we're going to write a third one, and then all three of them will be packaged in one set of covers by Tor under the title... Um, uh, the Rapture of the Nerds. Mm -hmm. um, and so that brings me out to a year from now. So that's that's the next two books. So I'm thinking about what I'll write. Essentially, I'm thinking about what I'll write when I'm finished this book because I've got a short story I'm going to write or a novella I'm going to write with Charlie. And so I'm thinking about what I'm going to write after this book. And so I've been noodling with this idea for the Rome book. It's, you know, I think that this is true of most science fiction writers that we don't lack for ideas. You know, there's this thing that, that happens to all of us where you get an email from someone saying, I have a great idea. You write it and we'll split the money. It's like, I'm not short of great ideas. I'm short of time to write. If you can, if you can clone me, we'll split the money. You know, well, this is this is I think the the problem with uh, for me at least with um, services social networking. I already know enough people. <laughs> yeah, there is that. You know, one more telephone to answer is no one's is n is no help. They do sometimes add value, but I kind of wish that there was a Hippocratic oath for social networking services, which is that uh, first you will do no social awkwardness. Mm. First, you will never create a bad social situation. Right, that you will only find ways to enhance them, even if those ways are modest. I've been speaking with Corey Doctorow. His new book is For the Win. Thank you for speaking with me, Corey. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick. So nice to see you again. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.